0: You're listening to Review and Preview on Facebook Live.
1: what is going on everybody welcome to review and preview folks i'm tom scavetta joined alongside my co-host kyle russo kyle how's it going tonight
0: it's going good tom how you doing man
1: good i'm not used to being on the right side this is going to be an interesting uh Dimension for us here tonight is Kyle is on the left, uh, at least according to our peripheral view. But shout out to our producer, James Montefusco, for doing a little switch up on that. Looking forward to having James back over the summer. But folks, we have a lot in store to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about the Brooklyn Nets and their series against the Milwaukee Bucks. Briefly, we have a pre-recorded interview with Islanders superfan uh, Matt Giacomo. That was an excellent interview. Got to record with him earlier today. Then we're going to talk about the Montreal Vegas series. And then we have some fun topic to talk about the college football playoff expansion. The 12 team playoff expansion is likely to go through the committee revolving around that left today. And remember, folks, if you do have a comment, feel free to drop it in the stream as James is already at it. Got to change it up a little. Uh, Kyle, great seeing
0: you Saturday. I heard you guys had a good time Saturday watching game four, huh? Yeah, my uh, my voice is a little hoarse. It was uh, it was my first time seeing the guys in, in a really long time. I think since, well, obviously James uh, a while, but Kyle uh, Earhart a while as well. And we went out. James joined me and Kyle later on in the night. And I'll tell you, man, that island game was something, something else, something else.
1: Yeah, it definitely was something else. We will talk about the Islanders in just a few moments, but – Uh, After the Islanders won Game 4, it was Game 7 between the Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks. The Nets were ahead in the series 3-2, to and we're not going to go too deep into the logistics on this because Paul Lombardi spoke about it last night on his show, The 3 and D, which I was the guest on. But Game 6, Bucks won in serve. 104-89, 104.89. Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton and Giannis are a emerging big three. Not emerging, they're a um, cemented big three at this point. And then they went on to beat the Nets again in Game Seven, 115 to 111 in overtime. And probably being the only Milwaukee Bucks fan in New York City, that that was very very happy for me to watch as a Bucks fan. Uh, I know Kyle. You, you probably were not thrilled about this. The Bucks advanced to the Eastern Conference Finals for the second time in the past three years, which, ironically enough, they're going to play the Atlanta Hawks, Coach Bud's former team. And Kyle, I've got to ask you: Kevin Durant had 48 points, most ever in a Game Seven, but he shot up an air ball with 0.3 seconds left. How impressed were you with the Milwaukee Bucks in Game Seven? defensively in this game?
0: I mean, they were good defensively. Uh, What it came down for me in this series, you know, a a lot of these guys, the stars on both teams put up big numbers. You know, you look at the points, you go straight to that. But in terms of shooting efficiency, both sides, Tom, were pretty terrible from not from the field necessarily, but from three at least for a decent amount of these games within the series. They really didn't shoot well, either one of these teams. The Bucs didn't impress me, though. Giannis did step up. That was the biggest question because, Tom, if they lost that game seven, the series loss would have automatically been on him. He's the superstar. He signs with the team long-term, long-term commitment, and then losing the lead in a game – what was it, game five? They wound up losing. Yes. And that final couple minutes of that game five for him as well would have been a a bad scene for him. Uh, But they played very well. They won the series out. They did what they had to do, and now they go on to play an Atlanta Hawks team, which is surprisingly very, very good. They've taken off a dominant Knicks uh, defensive team. They just took off uh, the 76ers, Joel Embiid, and now they're on to play the Milwaukee Bucks. They've been a surprise team, but we'll see what happens. We will see what happens. I also want to mention, too, what I meant
1: by that was Harden shot two for 12 from three. In that game, game six, P.J. Tucker played outstanding defense the entire series. The Bucks won the turnover battle throughout majority of the series. And, you know, this team overcame a lot of adversity. Let's give a lot of credit. Brooklyn's lack of depth was exposed. The Bucks, you know, they were able to revert to guys like P.J. Tucker and Pat Connaughton. Coach Budenholzer, as much heat as he's gotten. He made an excellent coaching move in the series, eliminating Bobby Portis from the rotation because Brooklyn was using a much smaller lineup especially after Kyrie Irving and James Harden went down with injuries. So job well done by the Milwaukee Bucks. I think P.J. Tucker and Drew Holiday were critical additions to this basketball team this season, both acquired via trade, and they're two outstanding defenders. That's why, again, in overtime, look, both teams are exhausted. Both teams are tired. There are only eight total points scored. But if you're a Brooklyn Nets team and, and you only score two points in overtime, that's just unacceptable. That's just unacceptable. They um, won
0: uh, they went one for one for eight, I believe, in those years. Yeah. You can't have that happen.
1: No. It's it's definitely not good. Um, I am a little taken back by the amount of excuses that have come from net fans in this series. Um I, I you lost. At the end of the, at the end of the day, Milwaukee was the better team. And the Nets lost the series. Milwaukee was the better team. They presented the most amount of challenges to the Nets in this series. They have a big three of their own. Your best ability is your availability. Paul Lombardi with a comment the jury is still out on Brooklyn for sure. Uh, I do agree. Brooklyn maybe has the better superstars, but who has the better team? It's not the Brooklyn Nets.
0: I mean, I, I still I, I still think it was Brooklyn. And I stand by my word that this would have been a sweep if everybody was healthy for the Brooklyn Nets. A sweep? Yeah. They won the first two games, and they would have won. They lost without James Harden game three. They lost by three points, and then having no Kyrie and James Harden on one leg. No, they lost Kyrie in game four, half the game, and they only lost by 11, and then you have hobbled James Harden. You still won game five, and then you lose the two games because James Harden is you know not shooting well because he can't jump because of his hamstring. And Kyrie's not playing. I still stand by my word they would have swept this team. And it's not because of necessarily Giannis's individual performance, but, again, with the exception of some home games, Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton were absolutely atrocious shooting the basketball. They were horrible. Even in this last game that they won, I think Drew Holiday was what from the field? Five for 23? Check It doesn't matter,
1: though, because Chris Middleton had the – eventual game-winning shot, that game-winning three in overtime. He came up in clutch moments. I didn't see James Harden coming up in cl- clutch moments. Durant had to do it all by himself. Because AJ Tucker, he was Drew hurt. Holiday, Giannis was making free throws. He was making more free throws than he normally does. And, look, there's no way this Milwaukee team gets swept, especially when the series was shifting to Milwaukee back in game three and game four. I, I think that's a little absurd to say that – the, the the bucks would have gotten swept in in four games in this series i i, I think it's a little bit i mean over they over
0: lost start. they lost game 3 because they shot 19% from the three point line you know and that's because
1: of my point earlier the bucks defense was the reason why they shot 19%
0: what was you the reason say, why the bucks only put up 86 is the nets what, defense what was, good what no, was the, the reason why getting shots. what was
1: what was the reason why the nets scored less than 100 points in 3 games in this series
0: it's because they didn't have
1: you can't stars. blame it on the injuries. You got to step up. It's that next man up mentality. Stars. And I'm sick and tired of hearing excuses because Steve Nash didn't even know when to take his starters out in Game Four. The Bucks had the better coach by far. Everyone wants Bud gone. He's a top five to ten coach in the league. You'd be silly to let him go. He does have shortcomings, but Tom, I if they lost,
0: if they lost Game Seven, you you tell me Bud is still on the roster because I think you're wrong with that. Um. I don't. especially so after here's not having- here's
1: the here's the problem. Should he, should he still be the coach or would he still be the coach, right? I don't think he um, would have been the coach. Would he still be the coach? No. Um, should he still be the coach? Yes. Because who are you going to replace him with?
0: Rick Carlisle, I think would be better. Has more success. That no. would be a well, – that's no, my no, personal opinion. Absolutely. I, think-
1: I mean, look, it, it's it's Look, we're agreeing to disagree here on this point. The bottom line is the Bucks were the better basketball team all around, depth-wise. I mean, look, Brooklyn had no bench. Brooklyn had three superstars, one guy who who you don't know where he is half the season. Uh Kevin Durant, who who you know, he this big three, you knew they weren't going to be able to stay healthy for a seven-game series. It's not always about it's not always about the amount of talent that you get. It's about who you get and what wins championships is about who you get. And I think that's what defines team. And Milwaukee, in my opinion, was the better team in this series. Not to it. mention they, they beat Brooklyn on the road in Game 7 in crunch time.
0: You look at the, all the NBA finals just the last decade, the most talented team always wins. That's how it works. With the exception of some in-betweens, 2011, the Mavericks, uh, oh, four Pistons, the team with the most talent always wins, and I think that Not Brooklyn, yeah, no, they didn't because they were hurt. If you're missing you two said 15- Milwaukee,
1: presented the biggest challenge to the Nets in the playoffs. You agreed
0: with me when I made this point, yeah, right? I did agree. And then the Bucs, uh, then Brooklyn absolutely steamrolled them in the first two games, and then the point changed. It's like, oh man, this team really can't compete. You have one of the worst shooting nights ever in game three on both sides, it falls in the Bucks' favor. And then you lose Kyrie in the second half of game four. So it's just K- KD out there standing out there on an island by himself. That's, that's why they lost the series. The momentum changed, not because they were the better team, because they were healthy. Because, again, they weren't making shots. Brooklyn, it was all you had to do was stop KD, and they couldn't do that either. He had what? He had a 50-point game and a 48-point game? And nobody else
1: could – and nobody else could score. Well, Joe they contained Harris, did Joe Harris. He didn't they, they, contained, they contained Blake Griffin, Bruce well, Brown. He
0: dropped 17 points
1: and 11 rebounds in the final game. They couldn't continue. Well, when, when you're playing more minutes and starting more, you're going to score more points. That's just how it is. And Kevin Durant makes other players better around him. But at the same time, Milwaukee stepped up to the plate defensively. That's why they won game six. That's why they won game seven. And as I predicted – the Milwaukee Bucks would win the series in seven games. Giannis responded to his playoff demons. Look, you have to give Milwaukee a little bit of damn credit here for winning this series. I mean, this whole time we, we, we've been speaking, and you haven't said a word about how Milwaukee was a good team in this series. They deserve to win the series. It, I mean, I'm tired of Steve Nash just coming out and saying, look, we're missing Irving. We're missing Harden, who was not at 100%. Harden scored 22 points. In Game Seven, he didn't shoot the ball well.
0: But that's it. What is that's that? What, what is
1: that? What, but what is that attributed to? Is that attributed, attributed to his hurt. injury? Is that attributed to his injury? Is that attributed to the Bucks' defense? Is it? Is it a combination of both? There is zero credit given for the Milwaukee Bucks and the big three that they have assembled. Drew Holiday upgrade over Eric Bledsoe. This, I, I mean. Yeah, Dante, that's, that's Dante hands down. Vincenzo didn't play in this series, but PJ Tucker basically replaced Wesley Matthews from last year. I mean, come on,
0: what more do I have to say for you to give the Bucks credit for winning this series? I give they won the series. They're going to the Eastern Conference Finals. I think that at this point, they're probably the favorites to win the whole thing because they're the only team left that's healthy.
1: I'm just I'm tired of the excuses for Brooklyn Nets fans, and as I did mention. Before, Kyle, you and I actually made predictions for this series uh, a few weeks back, and let's hear those out. But now it's time to fear the deer, ladies and gentlemen. Milwaukee is back. They're going to advance against the Brooklyn Nets because they match up the best about them. They match up the best with them. I'm going to go Bucks and seven, but I think the Nets are going to give them a fight. I said from the beginning, this is going to be a seven-game series. I was called silly for thinking that way. I mean, I'm just tired of excuses from Nets fans.
0: I mean, that, the was, before, on the series. that was before they got hurt, though. That's that's the, that, that's the what's missing puzzle. You know, you said you're because tired of I... excuses. It's, again, you t- let me ask you a question, Tom. You take Giannis off the team. Are the Bucs even competing? No. That's like what you're taking of, what away. What kind of
1: question is that?
0: But that's how you ask Brooklyn. How, what are you going to do when you're missing two of the top 15 players in the world? One there of them is, is
1: the top five. I, I am not arguing the fact that the Brooklyn Nets were shorthanded. They were, but they did this to themselves in the regular season, trading away their whole bench for a superstar talent who's a nutcase and doesn't know how to stay in shape, and James Harden. <laughs> Kyrie Irving wasn't available for half the games this season, and Kevin Durant was left out there by him himself. Team basketball won this series. And as far as talent, I'm not saying the Milwaukee Bucks are more talented, but from a team perspective, the Milwaukee Bucks, in my opinion, were the better basketball team heading into this series with the big three. I don't think so. But they won the regular season Kevin- series.
0: What does it mean? Milwaukee was the number one team in the Eastern Conference last year. They got almost swept by the Heat. Actually, won the only game that Giannis didn't play in. It means nothing what you do in the regular season. We know that. are well, a whole different animal. We know. That. Well, we're, just, we're then, just
1: bringing up stats a- after stats.
0: And then okay. you look at what is it? <laughs> Durant shoe, Tom. He has a smaller shoe size on that shot that could have been a three pointer. Another excuse. You know people, another you know people, excuse. No, it's and not I'm another sick excuse. Tired of it. It's, you know it's exactly what about? it is. This it's is another excuse. About. No, this is what people will be talking about is, my God, the Milwaukee couldn't even beat them when they had a lead. They couldn't beat them without James Harden. They couldn't beat them without Kyrie. Again, the fact that these games were even as close as they were without these guys is what's mind-boggling to me. You want to talk about talent competing. These games should have been blowouts by 20-plus points. You have everybody out I
1: I passionately disagree with that. In Game 3, before everybody was hurt, they were missing shots. They were missing shots in that first quarter in Game 3. The series – and look, the only team that won a road game in the series was the Milwaukee Bucks. Kyrie didn't go down until, I believe it – if I'm not mistaken, I believe he got hurt in Game 4
0: or Game 5. He got hurt in game four. That was out the right. entire first, uh, second half when well, they were only down by a couple points.
1: He was, he, he was available lose. for game three when the Milwaukee Bucks won.
0: Yeah, because they shot 20. You want to hear the stats? Field goal percentage, Brooklyn 36%, Milwaukee 37. Three-pointer, Brooklyn 25, Milwaukee 19. It was one of the worst shooting nights in a playoff game I've ever seen. That's why they and they only won the game by three. That's what I'm, That's what we're talking about here. Look what we're talking about. We're talking about a Bucks team winning the game. Meanwhile, they shot worse than Brooklyn did, and won it by three points without one of their superstars. I, I mean, again, are they the better team? No, absolutely not. Did the, were they the benefactor of a lot of injuries? Yes, but again, like I said before, Katie Inch further or even hits that ball or whatever. I know you're saying excuses, excuses, excuses. What about the Bucks blowing big leads? What about Giannis no being a non-factor? Yeah, but that's that's the series. What about the fact if it goes the opposite way, you look at game six, we're talking about – you talked about James Harden dropped 22 in the last game. He still contributed. Yeah, but he shot two of 12 from the three-point line. Yeah, he made all of his free throws, which equivalent uh, equated to 10 points. But you look at what Milwaukee did, Giannis stepped up. Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday were pretty bad all series long with the exception of games in Milwaukee, really only Middleton. Holiday but struggled they tremendously. Clutch,
1: they showed up in clutch moments. And in my in my opinion, the Milwaukee Bucks were the better basketball team in the series. And this is exactly what I predicted to happen. Sal actually was the one that, that was calling me dumb for saying the Bucks would win in seven. Look, look what happened. The Bucks won in seven. Because they got I'm hurt. Sorry. You
0: can't win on injury. You can't make excuses. You can't make excuses. This is the playoffs. If you would have told me, the hey, Kyle, you're not only going to miss Kyrie, but you're going to miss James Harden too. You're right. I would have picked the Bucks as well. But the fact that it was this close, that it took a game seven without those guys, are you kidding me? They're the better team. They are the I better dis- team. I disagree. I
1: disagree. I disagree.
0: All out, nothing more the 10. KD couldn't do any more. What do you expect from them In the two last games at home, Absolutely dominated. We talk Milwaukee. about the defense for the Bucks. You had one assignment. James Harden played played hard. Don't get me wrong, but he wasn't talking the James about. We all know what are you talking about? Offensive rebounds. Milwaukee dominated on the boards. They dominated you on KD the boards. He hundred points in two home games when there was nobody else on the court. And because when he's holding the basketball the whole assignment. time.
1: Because he because he's holding the basketball the whole time. And I'm not denying that Durant is one of the best players in the league because that he is. He's one of the most talented players in the league, but Look, the bottom line is the Bucs won the series. Um, We do have to move on. I do want to briefly preview the Nets offseason. Kyle, man, that was a lot of fun. Um, Brooklyn now, they're in a little bit of a hole here. Spencer Dinwiddie declined his player option. Jeff Green, Bruce Brown, Tyler Johnson, Timothy Luau-Cabarro are all free agents now. How long of a window do the Nets have to win a championship?
0: Their window is open for as long as that three stay together because what they have is this, as we've seen in the past with super teams, is that all the older veterans or all-stars that want to get a ring will sign for less or join Brooklyn to help them get there. That's what we just saw, right? Blake Griffin was, in, was with Detroit for three years. Didn't even dunk for three years. He goes to Brooklyn. He looks like the old Blake Griffin from the Clippers days. You look at Marcus Aldridge, even though he only played eight games that looked absolutely incredible. This is what this Brooklyn team is going to be. Maybe you'll lose a guy like Cabarro. You're probably going to lose Dinwiddie because he'll probably re-up for more money. That'll hurt. Right. Again, they didn't have him all season long. He played a few games in the beginning and towards ACL. That was it. So it's not like they played with him all season long and you can say that was the contributing factor. That's why we lost the series. No. They were going – again, if they were healthy – I don't think we'd be having this conversation right now. It's a matter of health with this team. Can they stay healthy? Right? That was the same thing with this Lakers team that we saw. I
1: disagree, I disagree still, and the reason why the coaching aspect is huge in, in the playoffs. And Sal, Sal thinks I'm I'm lost in the comment section. I'm not lost. The Brooklyn Nets are home. The Milwaukee Bucks are in the Eastern Conference Finals. That's the bottom line. And by the way, not to mention, the Kevin Durant and the Nets stars decided to celebrate the end of their season at a rooftop bar. Absolute class. All right, so um, that's enough on the Brooklyn Nets. By the way, Kyle, the NBA draft lottery is tonight at 8.30 p.m. Um, I know I'm excited for this. I don't know about you. Do you have any general thoughts leading into the NBA draft lottery?
0: I mean, there's a lot of great talent going in this year. You have Jalen Suggs, Jalen Green, Cade Cunningham, uh, Jonathan Kaminga, Evan uh, Mobley you got a lot of talent, Davion Mitchell. I'm looking forward to see where these guys fall. Obviously, today is just the lottery, but the lottery is always fun because it never – at least the last couple of years, um, with the exception of last year. First team, uh, the Rockets who are in favor, uh, tied for first with the number two seed, which I think is Detroit, and number three – I don't remember who's placed at the third seed. They share 14% each in terms of favor to land that number one pick. Um but it hasn't been going in the direction of that number one team, which is the Rockets at this point in time due to the standings and due to the record they finished off with. So at least the last couple of years with the exception of last year. So it should be a lot of fun. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing where these guys go. You could, you could kind of slate kind of how like at least first two, three picks potentially go. So I'm looking forward to it. The lottery is always fun. And, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to seeing what happens and unfolds tonight. 8.30 I think it is, right, Tom? Yeah, no, um by the way, if it comes out during the
1: live show, we'll pin that. We'll let you know the order. We'll do like the top 3, top 5 or or something. But um yeah, yeah I think that'll be very interesting. I think the Thunder have a good shot to land it. I think they're that one team that might have some under the radar luck that I don't think people are talking about uh enough. I think it, it could be the Houston Rockets. I mean, that that probably I think they're the number one team. Yeah, they're, not, uh, they're number one. They have the highest percentage, right?
0: So yeah, well, no, yeah. Uh, number one three all share the same percentage at 14, but the Rockets are slated at number one because they had the worst record.
1: Yeah, so that'll definitely be very interesting to see what happens. But um, that was our basketball segment, um, very animated, very – yes, Kyle and I don't pra- – <laughs> Kyle and I do not practice fake fighting for the record. This is all in good fun. Uh, We go at each other with a lot of different sports. That's what makes us the duo that we are. But I think I'm really excited to introduce this next segment. We actually got to speak with um, Islanders superfan Matt DiGiacomo, who is also the public address announcer for the New York Red Bulls too, of the USL and scorekeeper for the New Jersey Hitmen. And we'll show you this segment at this time, and we will be back in a little bit. Just get the uh, video up here for you guys, and we'll get this show on the road.
2: that's keeper slash PA for the New Jersey Hitman, Matt. How are you doing today, my friend? Uh, Doing well, Tom. Thank you for inviting me on and uh, allowing me to be here. Um, A little less optimistic after last night, but uh, still got a lot of uh, things to say uh, about this run.
0: Yeah, you know, I know
1: it it was definitely a tough game last night, but before we kind of get into the X's and O's of that, I just kind of wanted to give the folks a little bit of background on, on you. So can you tell us a little bit about your YouTube page and when did you first become an Islanders fan?
2: Yeah, Big Red Sports. Uh, I started that page in sixteen seventeen, 17, but um, my trip with the Islanders starts in the lockout season uh, 2012, 2013. I come from what I call a sports agnostic family. So basically no tethering, no mainline observations in the family. So when I got into hockey at the behest of Rangers and Devils fans, uh, friends, uh, it was basically pick a team throughout that lockout year because then it had come back in January um, of 13. And I got fascinated with the Islanders run. And what really locked me in actually was game four against Pittsburgh that year where they, uh, they, they got blown out or I don't know, remember if they got blown up game three, but they lost game three and then they came out in game four and they, uh, smacked them down and, uh, the Coliseum crowd, uh, the atmosphere coming from the TV was like nothing I was seeing on other, uh, channels or other fan bases. So that hooked me in. And, uh, at first, it was a rough goal At first, but uh, I think uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm making the dividends now. All these years later, I, I, I think I made a good choice.
1: Absolutely, I know there's been a lot of success around the Islanders organization as of late, bringing in Barry Trotz as the head coach. And in Game Four of the series, we'll touch upon a little lighter note of the series with Tampa Bay. Obviously, they do lead three to two after last night's eight nothing win. But Saturday, Game Four. Ryan Pulak had a safe heard around the island sliding safe off Ryan McDonough's backhand shot at the buzzer. What was your initial reaction to that play and how exciting was that play?
2: Oh, that, that was like, first of all, I thought that was it because you could kind of feel the lightning fabricating something. I mean, the two goals going in, the timeout by Barry Trotz, that's to kind of sell him down, really reminiscent of what they did in game five on the road against the Bruins, they were up 5-2, 5-3, no, 5-2. They They're up 5-2, third goal goes in, fourth goal goes in, settles things down. And, you know, since Boychuk retired, I don't understand if the defense or if the players have a fascination with trying to do what – so Boychuk would grab the puck behind the net and he would have such a commanding slap shot that he would just clap it from behind the net and it would rim around the side of the rink and out. Now, Polak grabs the puck behind the net, tries to do that. It gets lost halfway out of the zone, and he sets himself up for what probably will go down as just one of the greatest plays in New York sports playoff history, regardless, again, of this series outcome, whatever the heck happens in the next couple of games, one or two, whatever. Just coming, the astuteness, because he lost it, and he was aware enough to see what was going on in front. The spin by McDonough. Varley coming all out of the paint to, 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 challenge, you know, the backhand goes on and I think, I, I don't even remember watching it. Cause I, I, I had you know, my hands on my, my face, but just the mesh of blue and the little black dot that slides out to the side, that, that was, that was everything. We exploded. I exploded here. My friend who doesn't watch hockey, who was just casually like in the room to Whoa. That, that that was that's the kind of play that like makes fans out of new new watchers. That that was exactly what they needed and more, and then some.
1: You mentioned how that was one of the biggest plays potentially New York sports history. Is it safe to say that was the biggest play of the playoffs so far?
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, it, uh, of this run. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, without that goal, the Islanders don't have a chance. Even though they dropped Game Five pretty decidedly. Whether they lost one nothing, 2-1 to in overtime, it's a loss, a loss, no matter how ugly. Yeah. So they put themselves on a chance to win because they, they, if they were heading into Tampa down two at dropping both the Coliseum with a chance of them to clinch in five, you know, there's, there's no chance for them at that point. But this gave them some – it gave them life. It gave them uh, a reminder that they can shut them down and they can shut down if they're all on the same page which, you know, (laughs) don't know what the heck that was last night, but uh, if they keep playing like they did in game four, uh, maybe they have a better shot.
1: One thing I noticed with the Islanders too, it's not just about one guy. It's a team-oriented effort, as where with a lot of other hockey teams. You have one face of the team with the Islanders. In my opinion, at least, you don't really have that. Now, I think that's kind of what has helped them throughout these playoffs, but – kind of moving into last night, uh, Monday night, the Lightning beat the Islanders 8 nothing in Game 5, scoring three goals in each of the first two periods. What went wrong strategy-wise for the Islanders? I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of different things. I mean, I watched the game. I I, I, I was
2: shocked, to say uh, the least. Well, in short, what went wrong was uh, everything because they couldn't establish themselves at all. I mean, you expected a push from Tampa, right? They're tied 2 2. They're heading back game five at home. Everyone knows who follows hockey and who follows best of seven sports in general. More than 75% of the time, if you win game five, you win the series. And that's stats, what they speak for themselves. It might even be higher for the Stanley Cup playoffs. They got the first goal in about uh, 45 seconds. It was like 19 minutes on the clock. Second goal goes in. It's maybe a minute after that. You know, third goal, halfway through the third. Was it on Varlamov? No. It, the first goal that went in was, you know, just a clean pick, whatever, Tampa's going to get those looks, one nothing. They really weren't playing badly. The second goal, deflecting off of Green's glove, sliding under the five-hole of Varlamov. It was probably one of the worst sequence of breaks you could have gotten. Then the third goal, pinballing off of Varlamov's arm, off of his back, into the net, like, it almost was like they weren't getting any of the bounces. But even when they were down three zero and to start the second period, they came out with a pretty good amount of juice. I mean, they could have gotten one uh, if it wasn't Andre Vasilevsky in net, but it was Andre Vasilevsky in net, and they had a little bit of a flurry. They take a bad penalty, and then bam, four nothing Tampa. That was kind of the backbreaker there. It, no cohesion. Uh, not they. They almost looked. And they kind of did it against the Bruins the first game and in some of the games. They almost look like they respect them to the point where they're intimidated when they get a rush. It, rather than – when they played game one, when the Islanders played game one against Tampa, they stood up to them. They kept everything on the outside, played the body, made them take bad shots, made them force decisions that led to either turnovers or just, you know, a, a, a nulled play. They weren't doing any of that. They were giving them too much space. Tampa would come in and rather than push out, they kind of turtled and they, I mean, which is what you would expect them to do when they're trying to shut a game down with a lead or if they're killing a penalty, which they did a lot of that last night too, uh, not killed, but you know, went on the kill. Yeah. Uh, but they kind of compressed and they turtled and behaviorally speaking, like it's indicative of what their mindset was. Not a lot of guys were on. And then. The Barzow cross-check, just to kind of add the icing on the 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 poop cake, if you will, of like how that entire game went, just taking a really senseless five-minute major. And now the risk is right now we're reporting it's like one 120. NHL Department of Player Safety, usually around this time, is when they start to make those decisions, whether and if Barzal even gets one game, God forbid if he gets any more than one, you're trying to advance to the cup, trying to beat the defending champions without your start center for the next two games, potentially not a great look at that, that point. I don't know what else Barry could have said to them. He probably gave them a verbal lashing in the first period. And then after that, what the heck do you even say to a team like that? It's like, well, we can't do that on Wednesday <laughs> at the very least. I'm not sure. And now uh, it beckons the question too, because Varlamov, like we, I, I don't think it was his fault. But like he lent in a few soft goals. Do they turn to Sorokin now as they've kind of alternated throughout the, you know, from Varley to Sorokin against Pittsburgh, from Sorokin to Varley against Boston. Now is it time to make that switch again? Should it have already have been made? More than likely, Trotz is going to want to shake a lot of variables. And I think this team gets better from the net out. When they see the goalie making big saves early in the game, it gives them a little juice and they kind of build off of that. Just how I think they generate a lot of their wins. And interestingly enough, in the Islanders-Tampa series, when the team team that scores first in any of the games so far has won the game. So scoring first as well, not chasing from the get-go or not trailing from the get-go for the Islanders, has been a big part of this series. Because when they establish themselves, they do a pretty good job of maintaining that. And when they don't and they have to chase, Tampa's a much harder team for them to catch up to than it has been against Pittsburgh or Boston.
1: Those are a lot of good points you mentioned there. I know you were talking about the goalies with the difference between Sorokin and Varlamov. Um, Who do you, who do you expect to be between the pipes for game six? I know you mentioned how Barry Trotz likes to make adjustments. It's kind of like a, what have you done for me lately type of mentality or who matches up best against this powerful lightning offense. What do you think? I mean, do you think it's Varlamov? Do you think they should go back to Sorokin?
2: You know, it, you stick with the hot hand until it goes cold, right? Mm-hmm. And coming out of game three, they didn't play a horrible game by any means. But I think it was the same behavior that we've seen of them in games two, uh, obviously big time in five, where they, right. they didn't press Tampa as much. They had a lot of one-and-done offensive chances. And that's more on the forwards. But psychologically with this team, again, I said they kind of get more energy from the net out. And when they make those changes, sometimes they know they have two really excellent goalies. But in the Pittsburgh series, in game three, Varley couldn't buy a save. They went to Sorokin. He locked it down after that. I mean, he gave, he bailed them out in game five of that Pittsburgh series. Same deal. Sorokin blows game one. They know they have two good attendees, and Varley has been well or uh, has matched well against the Bruins. Game three, he lets in a little bit of a weird Marchand overtime winner. But, you know, Trotz doubles down. He says, no, was the guy here. As well as Varlamov has played, both in this series and in the series last year in the bubble. I just don't know if you put him back in there, especially after he got just torched in the first period of Game 3. I'm sorry, the first period of Game 5. And uh, in the way, like I said, the Game 3 in Boston and the Game 3 in Tampa had two common themes. The Islanders weren't blown out by any means, but they struggled to produce a little bit offensively. And the goals that were allowed by the goalie were really not the greatest looks did not to blame the goaltender, but that's an instance where he doesn't steal the game against against Tampa against that lightning offense that you mentioned. I think Sorokin's the guy who's going to steal the game just from his athleticism. Uh, if he gets in and settles in early from the get go, instead of being thrown into what's already at that point, a three nothing game, uh, I think he's going to produce uh, a better, better quality saves and better quality uh, a start for the Islanders. And like I said, he just makes a few saves. He gets comfortable zero zero in the beginning of the game. I think Sorokin's going to be the guy. Hopefully,
1: I think that's enough on Game Five. We'll kind of save. Uh, we'll we'll move on to Game Six. Now, what are your general thoughts? And this is more or less a question about you know, the history of the team about what could be the last game in the barn. Do you have any general thoughts on on that? Is there any, like, emotional uh, strings attached to this game? Like, regardless of what happens in the series, it would be nice for the Islanders to end, you know, their time there with a win?
2: Big time. And a win, I mean, the ultimate goal, obviously, is the cup. And just because of how close they are, two wins away from an appearance and then – Six total wins away from another championship. Yeah, you want to close it out of the cup, but at the very least, it's, just, it's really hard. And I know we're not going to talk about game five, and it's just a really bad look to come from that back home. But like we said, the result's the same either way, and the Islanders make their bread and butter through Barry Trotz on the rebound games. They are, have a, I, don't, I can't tell you the record off the top of my head, but I can tell you that through the last three years he's been here, When they have a bad, coming off of a bad loss, they tend to rebound very, very well. Plus, going into what was sure to be probably the most raucous crowd to date with the expectations on and knowing that it's your guy, either shake hands or try again in Tampa for game seven. uh, It's just very, very hard to imagine them losing that game. And yeah, it'll be beyond emotional because yeah, it very well could be the last game ever, this time for real at Nassau Coliseum. You know, this isn't no 14-15 where, oh, they're going across the pond to Brooklyn, they'll come back, and, like, this is it. And I don't know if that's actually settled in with Islanders fans yet fully because of the emotional rides of the end of 14-15 and, oh, we're going to Brooklyn, oh, we're coming back. You know, they had the one preseason game in 17. A year later they announced they're coming back, and then they do the hybrid Brooklyn. So I think it won't settle in with fans until – they're in that building, but it's gonna be probably one of the loudest nights or the one of the loudest games that building will ever see. And you know, you take the Tavares game, you take uh game six against both the Penguins and Bruins, now, those crowds were wild. Uh it'll stand up there all time, that's for sure. And you know, the, that can't be understated, especially with guys like Josh Bailey. Uh poor Anders Lee has had to watch this run from the uh the sidelines as well. But like, you know, this this building to those veteran guys who have seen you know, 8,000 fans a night against Arizona on like a weekday. You know, those guys who have been through the been through the throws uh, that this franchise has been through. Uh, I I think it's mostly for them. And those are the guys that I always expect to step up like the Bailey, Barzell, uh, Pazier, Nelson, Brock Nelson, big time. I mean, those are the veterans that you would expect to, in these games to step up. And I think that uh, we can expect some big performances out of them for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned how important Barry Trotz is to this team as the head coach. Barzal has stepped up. He's done an outstanding job in the absence of Anders Lee, as you mentioned. Josh Bailey, uh, Martin, Nelson, whoever it's been, they've been, you know, all pitching in. But for me, one of the keys to the game is stopping Braden Point. Uh, The guy has scored a game in all five games of the series. He has, I believe, 13 goals in the playoffs five goals in a series. What is the key to stopping him and that lightning offense featuring guys like him, Stamkos, and Kucherov?
2: to add to that. I'm pretty sure that Braden point just broke a franchise record with Tampa for scoring goals. And I think six or seven straight playoff games. And now I think he's just made it seven with the goal that he had last night. So forget, you know, uh, he's smashed the Tampa Bay record owns it in full now. And, you know, so there's frustration on the side of Islanders fans, but I'm kind of taking the approach of we have to remember why Tampa Bay are where they are. They have Braden Point alternating in the middle six. You know, they have Kucherov, Stamkos, uh, Point, Palat, John. Like this roster is might as well be an all-star team from the East Coast uh, or the Eastern uh, divisions, frankly. Um, stopping them – Truthfully, it's kind of what they did in the Boston series. There's certain guys that you know you're either going to have you know, a very hard time stopping or you're probably not going to stop all of them. Let them take the shot. Just let them take the worst possible shot. Fight for every inch of it. Get the sticks in the shooting lanes. Get the body up the same way that uh, – not to change too drastically, but uh, Montreal's kind of doing the same thing right now. They're playing big-body type of style hockey. They're just clogging the shooting lanes, getting everything in front. Let it hit me, my stick, my skate, my helmet, whatever. Uh, as long as it does that, it won't get to the goalie. They're going to get their chances. They're going to get goals. Brandon Point's already been yeah. scoring a goal, and like you said, in every single game this series and in some from the prior series in Carolina, that streak has continued. So as far as containing them, just do the best that you can, but that their best has to be what they brought in game one, where they, they limited them successfully, albeit maybe a little bit of a uh, – Tired, not tired, but uh, you know, Tampa was kind of between series. They were a little inactive. So that game won, not totally indicative, but kind of indicative of what the Islanders can do. They forced Tampa to play their game, which they haven't really done since. So that'll be it. Just play them hard, get in the shooting lanes, and make life uncomfortable for them. Because that, once they start, like I said before, if they start to reel back and give them that time and space, it's gone because Tampa only needs and not even an inch to, to do some serious damage against any team in this league.
1: Um, you know, we talked about how Barzal has three goals in this series, but you hope somebody, somebody else steps up in game six. I kind of want to get into a series prediction here. I mean, there's really only three options. So, Matt, what are you thinking? Do the Islanders come back and win it in seven, or does Tampa Bay win it in one of these next
2: two games? My heart, my heart wants to say Isles in seven. My brain is telling me Tampa in seven, but it's either way. I really can't see them losing in Game Six tomorrow. Uh, it's just historically speaking, they have all of they have all of what they've done in the last three years working in their favor because all the signs point to a big uh, comeback game in six. But once it goes to Game Seven in Tampa, I I just don't see Tampa dropping that kind of game unless the Islanders play the most ridiculous road game they've ever played under Barry Trotz of all time. Barry Trotz is a genius. He he, he had he's playing chess and he has an idea of what his pieces are, how to utilize them, what he can do to negate uh, uh, John Cooper's guys, but. I, and I don't want to say it like this, but they might just be in in, port, in parts of this game where they have been playing pretty well. They're just getting out talented. Right. If they're going to win with over Tampa superior talent, they'll just have to take their work ethic and turn it up to levels. They've never even been seen before. That's the only way that they're going to be able to do it because they have the talent, but Tampa owns the talent. Frankly, they, 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 they I, we can't stop talking about how stupid deep just from offense uh, to, to playing McDonough as a cat. Like sometimes has McDonough rotated on the third pairing? I don't even know because it's just yeah. the, 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 the amount of players, the amount of options that they have. And even the guys on the shelf for Tampa, uh, just ridiculously strong in all options. It's going to take a lot to beat Vasilevsky, but I think more than that, it's about just not letting the Islanders beat themselves because a lot of this, like I said, I just, they allow one goal and mentally, they need to be more resilient to press out and continue to challenge rather than behaviorally as a team and as a unit, kind of turtle condense and just, uh, can, you know, just get too lost in the trap, get too lost in, in protecting the net. So my heart, Isles in seven, my brain, Tampa in seven, long and short.
1: So you convinced me, Matt. But before this interview, I was saying Tampa Bay's winning in six because it's very difficult <laughs> to have a two-day turnaround coming off an 8 nothing loss. But between it being potentially the last time in the barn – The Islanders are—they're going to have that home crowd behind them in Game Six. I actually do think they're going to win Game Six, but heading back down to Tampa in Game Seven, I think it's just going to be too much. Uh, You know, you mentioned that firepower that Tampa Bay has. Vasilevsky has been outstanding the entire series, as where teams with the best goalies usually advance in these playoffs. And Vasilevsky's been outstanding. Price has been outstanding, and that's why these teams are still in the mix. And the Islanders right now are, are kind of in a situation where. We don't even really know who's starting in Game Six. It's not 100 percent certain. So uh, I'm going to go with Tampa Bay in seven. So that'll be my prediction.
2: Totally but, fair.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We will see what happens. Also, one more question on the Islanders. What do you think of the cap situation heading into the next couple of years? I know there's a couple of guys that you know are coming up. They're they're due for contracts at around the same time. What are your overall thoughts on that?
2: It's it's look last so. Just to preface, last off season, uh, coming into this year, Lemarillo makes a trade that he says he never wanted to have to. He deals Devontae's really stud young up and coming defenseman in the Colorado Avalanche, and basically for you know a couple of picks. And that's and he did not want to have to make that trade, but Catholic implications forced his hand. Now, here's who the I'll give you a brief list of guys who are going to be restricted or UFAs next year. Beauvillier, Sizikas, Bifra Bellows, uh, Otto Koivula, who some of these guys might be lower on the depth chart, but besides that, Adam Pellick. Adam Pellick is going to earn his pay, and he might not be the sexiest or the flashiest D-man. You know, he doesn't put up big numbers. He doesn't uh, put up a lot of points, but... He Adam Pelik is the biggest gear in what the Islanders do in terms of shutting teams down defensively and making them play uh, a more structured and you know boxed out game. He's going to command a lot of money. The same thing goes to Ilya Sorokin, their you know stud Russian goaltender. Who rumor has it, Sorokin is the reason they even brought Varlamov in the first place to build that uh, Russian bridge uh, to acclimate him better to the team. He needs to get paid. He's coming off. They gave him, I think $2 million this year. Sorokin. And he's probably going to be chasing Barley's payday of about five mil. Adam Pellick probably earns about five mil. Besides that, you've got guys, <clears throat> excuse me. You've got guys coming in, uh, barzal signed, but in two years, you know, you have to think about how to structure these deals because now in two, two more years, barzal is probably going to want more than the 7 million he's making. Uh it, it's going to be – frankly, it's going to be a big mess. <laughs> that's the best way to put it, which is why I think that Lamarillo really wanted to go forward with this core because, you know, the fourth line guys, clutterbuck got one more year on his deal after this year, and that's it. So the fourth line might get broken up. Who knows what the top six will look like. They've got to keep Pellick. Does that mean that they get rid of Nick Letty, who, by the way, Letty – Five and a half mil. Uh, his last uh, year is this year, or I'm sorry, next year, 21 22, not uh, 2021. Um, he's going to need money soon. Pulley, Pollock's next uh, last year is this uh, coming. So he'll need a contract next year. It's going to be a mess, and I'm really afraid of what this team, this roster will look like uh, with Trots. Now, here's my thinking. I'm not sure it matters how much turnover there is. It matters for the chemistry of the locker room, for the structure of their game. They convinced me in 1819 when they replaced you know who with Philpola, uh, Komarov, uh, Martin they brought back. I'm convinced that Trots can make almost anything work, but I'm convinced for the integrity of that locker room how well they're able to keep this together because. Like you mentioned, the Islanders don't have any or many stars. You know, there's Barzell, Eberle, guys like that. But they make their their bread and butter off of keeping a tight-knit group together, playing, getting contributions up and down the line on making sure that everybody's contributing something. And I think that kind of plays into the character that's in this locker room of guys who have been together for a long time. This formula, I think, is very unique. Uh, Apologies on that. This formula is very unique, and what could be the most dangerous thing for the Islanders is risking having it broken uh, broken up uh, by having a couple key guys just either leave or get swapped with different uh, players. The chemistry is in danger, and I fear that this may be the window outside of this year might be a little, uh, you know, waning and... We won't until we get there, but I'll tell you this, Tom, it's going to be very interesting to see what Lamarillo does to try and circumvent a lot of these pressing issues here with the cap. Hopefully it goes up. Hopefully it it goes up as, you know, Toronto made that bet when they signed uh, all their 11 million guys that it would go up. Hopefully it goes up, but if not, it's going to be a very interesting set of uh, games to see what uh, can be done to keep them together.
1: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if um, they're able to extend that championship window. But, Matt, before I let you go, why don't you tell the folks and the listeners where they can find you on your social media, your YouTube page, this and that?
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, So, YouTube, uh, it's Big Red Isle, like one I-S-L-E, cast. That's one word. Or just look up uh, my name, Matt DiGiacomo, on YouTube. can't miss me, the dude with the big poofy red hair. Um, I'm talking Islanders, but you know, I love the Mets. I'm a big jets fan. I work for the Red Bulls obviously. So I love soccer. Uh, I've kind of got my hands all over the place. That's where you could find me and on Twitter at M D I G I A C. That's my Twitter, my YouTube. And from there, you could definitely get the rest. Uh, Tom, thank you for reaching out. It, this has been a blast. Uh, I can't remember the last time I did uh, something in this format. I like this a lot. Uh, thanks for reaching out man yeah hopefully see you soon
1: yeah really appreciate you coming on the show we'll have to have you back in the future but until then thank you very much and we're going to head back to review and preview let's go islanders All right, folks, so uh... Kyle, that was was a lot of fun to watch. That was Matt DiGiacomo, Islanders superfan, PA announcer for the New York Red Bulls too, and scorekeeper, PA announcer for the New Jersey Hitmen. Um, We will have a full exclusive YouTube video with him up tomorrow where Matt also in the segment, he also predicted the winner of the Vegas-Montreal series and he analyzed the Gerard Gallant press conference, which happened today. But
0: Kyle, what did you think? I thought it was a really good interview. I thought that he brought up some great points about the team and how they could seem to flourish, potentially get back in the series as they are down 3-2 right now and would essentially – not essentially, will have to win these next two games if they do want to appear in the Stanley Cup.
1: Yeah, and I just – again, I, I don't want to – I know it's tough to talk about an 8 nothing loss. I don't want to beat around a bush with this, but what are your general takeaways from that game? Obviously, Braden Point, um, Nikita Kucherov, Stephen Stamkos – the offense is just so powerful. What do you take away from that game? And obviously, if there's a mastermind to make adjustments in a two-day turnaround, I wouldn't put many coaches ahead of Barry Trotz in that department. But what do you take away from that game?
0: I think that in a game five, it was just you saw it, you know, like Matt, uh, like Matt alluded to, the bread and butter of this team has been their goaltending, is that no matter what, you can count on them every single night. And, and both goaltenders, whether it was Varlamov or Sorokin, just had very poor nights of uh, Varlamov having to be pulled after the first period, letting up uh, three goals on 16 shots. And then Sorokin didn't do much better, I think, uh, five goals on 26 shots. So while they didn't score either and got outshot by double the amount of shots on goal that they had, 42 to 21, While that offensive factor was not there, you know, after that first period, you saw it. It was just, it was draining. Because even though you saw that they were down 3 0, and obviously there's 40 minutes left of hockey to play, to get back into that game as a team that necessarily isn't the team that's going to get a tremendous amount of shots on goal, but capitalizes on the shots that they do have, and that wasn't happening for them, it was just going to be an incredible feat if they were going to be able to do so, and they weren't able to do so. There's a comment from Sal that I actually
1: really liked. Um, it was about game six. Game six will be about the better goalie. I do agree. I mean, I think Vasilevsky is the better goalie. Um, that's that's no Ranger bias. I, I do want to – I do think Tampa Bay has a really good shot at winning game six, but there's some spiritual thing about this being the last game at the barn or the mausoleum, as some people like to call it, um, That the that the Islanders are going to go out on a high note, and pull this out. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on the last game out at Nassau Coliseum, potentially.
0: Yeah, I, I listen, I mean, you could only hope that they go out on a high note, whether they do win a game seven or not, to win that last game at the barn would be, you know, tremendous, the memories in which they built They, You know, uh, since Barry came over, they've been an extremely competitive team, and they've been in a the last three years. And to end on a high note in the barn with all these rumors in the past, you know, moving to the Barclays Center, potentially being relocated out of state, to end off on a high note at home before they move to uh, Elmont next year, it, it, it would really be a tremendous thing, at least for me to see. It would be it would be really nice to see them win that final game six if they aren't able to move on to the Stanley Cup.
1: Here comes the kiss of death, and this is no dark humor from me by any means. I think the Islanders are going to win tomorrow night. I, I really do. I think they're going to win game six. They're going to go out on a high note. I do think they will lose game seven in Tampa Bay. Um, I think that's what I originally had. You had Islanders in seven, so both are still in play. Both yeah. are still in play. So um, last question on that, the save heard around the island, Ryan Pulak. What was going through your head, Kyle, when you watched that play live? McDonough, the turnaround backhand shot at the buzzer. What's going through your mind at that moment?
0: So the Islanders are up 3 0 entering the third period. And I was talking to Kyle Earhart. We were talking about it. He's like, the key to this win is watch the first five minutes of the third period. If they don't give up a goal, they're going to win. They give up a goal three and a half minutes into the first, uh, into, uh, within the first uh, couple minutes of the third period. And then we're like, here we go. Here we go. Then they give up that second goal. And then you're, you're on the edge of your seat for the entirety of the game where you had a 3-0 lead going into that third period. Then it gets down to crunch time. Pulling, uh, I think at one point it was a, a six on four uh, for them to pull the goalie and then have an empty net opportunity. And you, and you see McDonough with, with a fantastic move, don't get me wrong. And you see Varley come out, and you get scared because you see bullies come out. It leaves the net open, and you see Puck slide across. And at first, I didn't know what happened. I thought it went in, and it was just delayed. And you see him come across. You see the fans' reaction. I'm screaming my head off. As you hear, my voice is completely gone. Still have not fully recovered. It was unbelievable. Probably one of the best games that I've ever watched in my entire life, whether it was a playoff game or just a regular hockey game the excitement from minute one to minute 60 was just constant throughout the entire game. And to end off like that, that's a tremendous memory that I'll hold for, for a very long time.
1: Absolutely. And it's well-deserved for Highlanders fans to be this far. And, you know, you guys have gone through a lot of losing over the years. It's nice that this team is still at that championship contending level. Uh, the question is how long will that last? Obviously, Kucherov leads the NHL with 27 points in the playoffs. Braden Point has 13 goals, so it's going to be very, very challenging. And, you know, when we had John Kaywood on last week, he picked Isles in six. And I feel like part of that was because the Islanders had won their first two series in six games. That includes Boston and Pittsburgh. Now I have a little bit of a different feeling. I think, unfortunately, it's going to go the other way. So, I know you and James love my reverse psychology. Um, so maybe you'd like to hear that, but um, that's my personal thoughts on the islanders. they're they're um, gonna give it all they got. But moving on, we're gonna talk about Vegas and Montreal, a series that is tied two to two. And this the Mo- Montreal Canadians are playing a very similar uh, very similar way. That the Islanders are against Tampa Bay. Obviously, we know that Vegas and Tampa are the most two talented teams left in the playoffs, but the Isles and the Habs continue to show resiliency and a tremendous amount of effort. Um, Montreal was actually up two to one in this series, Kyle. Tofoli and Byron have been great. Um, Josh Anderson was fantastic. And then that rookie they have too, Cole Caulfield, he's been yeah. insane. He's been insane. And Montreal's been pretty good at home. I know. I think game two and game three, they won by the exact same score. And, you know, I got a little nervous heading into game four. I wasn't sure if Vegas was going to be able to pull it off because game four was on the road in Montreal.
0: Yeah, Montreal has done a, a tremendous job. You know, they first knocked off, I want to say Toronto, and then beat uh, Winnipeg. And you're here in this Western Conference matchup uh, against Vegas and, you know, you go with Vegas. And I said I wouldn't be surprised if they stole a couple games because Carey Price always gives you, you know, that ability. He's such a great goalie and goaltender. And he's done that in this series, really with the exception of game one. Games two and three only let up a combined four goals. And then the last game was an overtime loss, only uh, allowing two goals in that game as well they've been a tremendous unexpected team and it's been extremely entertaining to watch because at least from my eyes because i think i think at least on this show i thought vegas was going to win in 5 games i think i said they'd win in 5 games or something like that but montreal is giving them a run for their money and now entering game 6 tonight right they enter get, no game 5 tonight at o'clock. Yeah. this is really be a sticking point cuz if montreal wins on the road again vegas they had the home opportunity to end it out and then Reached the Stanley Cup for the first time, I think, since ninety three, I want to say.
1: Ninety-three, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think that was the last time a Canadian team was in the Stanley Cup. So it'd be a huge uh, accomplishment. It would be a huge storyline.
1: I picked Vegas in four. I was dead wrong. Awful prediction by me. Um I did not think Montreal stood a chance, but um, I know you picked Vegas in five. So both of us have been caught sleeping on Montreal yeah. they've impressed us you know um, our predictions were not accurate there and then game four Vegas finally um, gets a win they trailed one nothing in the third period and at that point I'm thinking you know there's a chance this could be it if they go down 3-1 there's no coming back from that although uh, there have been instances before where a team that's been down 3-1 has come back to win a series at this stage of the playoffs and now uh, McNabb scored a goal to tie the game, and then Roy had the game winner for Vegas. And then Robin Leonard was in net for Vegas. I know you you have a little familiarity with Leonard as a net minder. Um, what do you think of him uh coming in for Mark Andre Flurry? I know Flurry's been I think we just passed his eighteen year anniversary of um being drafted into the NHL. So it's still remarkable that he's playing at this high of a level, but Shout-out to Leonard coming in there and making some good saves.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, Leonard, the thing that Vegas had on their side with all the talent that they have offensively, defensively, is that they have two number one goaltenders on their squad and have the ability to choose whichever one they want to go in net. In that game three situation, Fleury uh, made a mistake out of net and, and winded up costing them the game. So for DeBoer to make that decision to have Leonard start game four you know, like you said, Tom, that could have been the difference maker in a positive light or a negative light. It worked out in their favor, winning the game in overtime, two uh, one victory. But that would have wrote the whole storyline of the series potentially um, with that mistake by Flurry in Game Three, and then the decision to start Leonard over Flurry, who's I believe started pretty much almost every single one of these games in the playoffs. Right? Do we know who's
1: starting Game Five tonight? I know that puck puck off is not until nine p.m. Puck off. Um. Um, Puck drop is not until 9 p.m. I'm thinking of JDF's puck off show.
0: It says that Marc-Andre Fleury is poised to start game five tonight. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's who I
1: would go with. That's who I would go with, too. I think there's no way Vegas loses this game tonight. At home, they have the home ice advantage again. I think they win game five and go up three to two. Um, You know, Toffoli has been very impressive, 12 points in these playoffs for Montreal, but – when you look at Vegas, you have guys like William Carlson and Jordan Marchisol, who leads the team with six goals. And, you know, that just goes to show you it's been more of a team effort. When you have veterans like those guys that have been on the team for a few years now, that championship-level experience, I mean, I think they've been to the conference finals three of their first four years as, you know, an expansion team. And it's been very impressive. So I'm going to change my prediction a little bit. I'm not going to sleep on Montreal. I think they extend the series – but I actually have Vegas winning in seven.
0: I'm going to say – I'm going to add another game to mine as well. I'm going to say Vegas in six. I know I said five earlier, but I think that – like you said as well, I think that Vegas will win at home tonight. And then, you know, going to Montreal, obviously very, very tough. But I think that they will get out in six
2: games.
1: That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think – You know, we'll see if Montreal is able to get another game out of this. I think they're only able to get another game max in this series. But uh, moving on, we have some exciting news to talk about. Well, um, maybe not exactly for Notre Dame fans, but the college football playoff expansion proposal. This was an unplanned segment that we kind of put together last minute. So over the past week, uh, well, really over the past two years, There's a 12-team format that went before top decision-makers today. Um, College Football Playoff Management Committee met today in Dallas to present the concept to 11 university uh, presidents and chancellors. This has been reportedly a secret committee for the past two years planning this proposal because there's been talks about expanding to eight teams, uh, not 12. So this 12 team is kind of coming out of the blue, and uh, this – proposal was approved to be reviewed during the summer. So what that means is that there could be some tweaks to this. Um, There's probably some other layer of authority that the sports media either wasn't aware of or just failed to mention. I think that has something to do with it. And basically what this 12 team playoff would include is six conference champions that includes power five, and then one of the highest ranked group of five conference champs. So You know, you got your Coastal Carolinas, your UCF, and then the top four teams would get a first-round buy. So, for instance, for example, Notre Dame would never be eligible to get a first-round buy unless they join a conference and really can't right now because of the TV contract. And then there will be six at-large bids. This would start in 2025. Kyle, what are your thoughts about this? This is kind of just – Kind of like a huge shock to me. I'm just still trying to process this whole proposal that they're working on here.
0: I would have liked to have seen six teams instead be the bid. And you kind of have team number one, teams number two uh, get the first week by. of team number three and team number six face off each other to play against a team number one. And then you'd have uh, four and five face off against each other to face a team number two and then work themselves to the actual national championship game itself. That would have been the max that it would have gone. Maybe eight, but 12 is a lot. I think it takes away from the meaning of the national championship gives you wind. Again, while I think for the sport, it can be entertaining because it gives you the availability to see more upsets potentially, which I don't know how much necessarily you're going to see that. I mean, maybe a Notre Dame being at number five hypes up the potential to be an upset versus them finishing off this season as what? Well. A number. What do they finish off this year with, Tom scene wise?
1: So they finished off with the fourth seed after the Clemson loss.
0: Yeah, that's true. It was in Ohio State got the third seed that was they controversial. Yeah. Yeah. So with that being said, I think there's more hype for a potential upset. I don't see that necessarily going in favor of that actually happening with teams like, you know, Alabama's gonna stay at the top, Clemson's gonna stay at the top. You know, we'll see what happens as the rest of the uh teams break down. But more teams in it I feel like that takes away from the competitiveness because while you think there is the availability to see upsets you're probably going to see a lot of blowouts in the first round at least with a lot of these teams facing off against each other so I think it kind of takes away in a sense that, that that greatness of the actual competition itself again I'm not opposed to it because it's more college football for us but I think that it it, it, it takes away the national championship, the college football playoff is supposed to be the greatest of the greatest. Not half of the top twenty five that finish off the year. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and just say you're the twelfth seed. Remember, a lot of some of these kids are 18 years old. And if you're the twelve seed, you're virtually playing a sixteen game season, which is yeah. something that I don't really like, that affects the NFL draft process. It impacts a lot of things that, you know, I think could be detrimental to the NCAA, so you know Notre Dame would probably be a five seed for a while. I mean, I'd rather be a five seed than a four seed if I'm being honest. But yeah. I do think that eventually Notre Dame will join a conference. I know you're more of a Bama guy, right? If you had to pick a team,
0: yeah, I, I don't want. I'm rolling with Bama. I'm, I roll with Bama. I just, I mean, it's so hard to go against Nick Saban and the program in which he's established. So I roll with Bama. Yeah. So
1: it's just, it's just interesting to kind of fathom what exactly this would entail, because I actually got a message from Brian McArdle host of from the stands sports. Uh, Make sure to go check out that show, Um, check out their Facebook page. So the board of managers, the decision, there was a rep from each of the 10 FBS conferences that includes a rep from Notre Dame, by the way. So, if you are a very strong independent team like the fighting irish you have to have a plan in intact and i'd imagine since there is a rep on that board of managers that there is a plan to join a conference more than likely the acc in the near future but i think this opens the door for a lot of teams like ucf and cincinnati i know you mentioned you would have preferred to see six teams i think i would have preferred to see eight um that's just the way I view it. I think one from the the power five, um, group of five, the highest rank of the group of five, and then two at largest at that point. I think that would be enough because you're still adding more excitement, but, you know, who wants to see a 12 seed go up against a five seed? You know, and you just extending the season. It, it seems a little unnecessary.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, the college football season, you know, you look at some how these schedules are slated, and there's probably for some of these bigger powerhouse teams like in Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson, uh, Florida this year, and obviously Notre Dame, you, you look at the 11-12 game schedule most of the time, and a lot of these teams are not really great in which they're facing, and there'll be like one competitive opponent that you'll see where you look forward to that game. It's kind of like doing it over again within the playoff, extending a regular season, facing up against these teams while they did – manage to get themselves in that top 25 or be eligible to be a part of it. It's not going to be that competitive a game. Right. Because usually, at least in college football, most of the time, if you're a lesser of a program, like if you're a Clemson going up against, you know, a, a lesser program, you're going to lose. And it's not going to be entertaining to watch because it's going to be over really quick. Again, you could see upsets, but I'd bang more on the fact that you're going to see a lot of blowouts in the first round versus – that exciting upset factor. That's why for me personally, I think that you could expand the playoffs, but I'd like to see less teams only because of the fact that I think that adding more teams give a higher chance of first round blowouts versus a six team seeding.
1: And there was a lot of heat coming from uh, Jimbo Fisher this past year about Texas A&M being left out as where a lot of people thought they should have been in. So I could understand that argument, but this process has been going on for the past two years. So it's not like that was the tipping point or something. There's been a plan installed where they kind of kept it on the low because they didn't want people to know about it. Cause then, you know, word gets out and then things could potentially fall through. And I think the whole uh, mantra of this is it's either Alabama, Clemson or Ohio state winning the national championship every year. Right. It's more than not one or one of those three teams.
0: So, so so let me get well. So how does it work? Because you know for Notre Dame individually, like Notre Dame play, played Clemson this year, and what gave yeah. them an, an edge is they won in the regular season. Mm-hmm. Do they still have the ability to play a, a tremendous team program like that? And let's say they beat a team like Alabama or they beat a team like Clemson, it won't matter at all. they Still can't get themselves into the top four. They'd be at most the top five because so they're not a part of the conference.
1: That's yes. To answer your question, yes, that's that's what it's going to be. And I'm not the biggest fan of it. I don't necessarily think it's fair, but at the same time, you're, you're putting pressure on them to join a conference. But at the same time, they have a TV contract with NBC. In addition, they tried to join the Big Ten, and there's, there's a lot of logistical politics behind that, which I'm not going to get into, why Notre Dame was declined from joining the Big Ten years ago. But... These really good schools that recruit really well are, are are screwed. You know, like they're screwed. Their whole position changes. But I don't know when. I think the TV contract ends. So currently, the TV contract for Notre Dame runs through through the 2025 season, and that's when this would start. So you would go. If I'm doing the math correctly, Kyle, I believe it would be one year. With potentially having a ceiling of being a five seed. Oh gosh. So it's not the biggest thing, but I mean
0: it's it's one year, knows? but still it still stinks. We,
1: we we could be talking like a year or two now, or even a month or two from now, when this whole thing could be different,
0: right? Yeah. This whole yeah atmosphere other, could change. The other thing with the expanded playoff, uh last thing real quick from me is that with the expanded playoff, you look at the regular season and you say to yourself, well, for these power teams like an Alabama and a Clemson or Ohio State, they have the ability to still lose against one of the better teams in their schedule, and it doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, you look at games like that, and that's the most important game of your season because that will determine if you're going to make the playoffs in a four-team playoff. Well, 12 teams now, it doesn't matter. They'll yeah. still make it.
1: See, that's what bothers me, too. You could have a two-loss um, – I think Bama lost two games a few years back. You could have a two-loss Bama team get the four, and then in the 12-0 and Notre Dame or 12-0 UCF get the five, right? So yeah. that does bother me a little bit. I think there are tweaks that need to be made. I don't necessarily hate this idea, though. Again, I would prefer eight teams. That's just where I stand. I would prefer I, – I would be fine with six as well. I'd be fine with six. I mean – And this is the last point I want to make on the subject, too. Shouldn't it be hard to make the
0: playoffs? It shouldn't be easy, right? Yeah. That that was my point. You know, expanding it by 12, it takes away from how much the regular season actually means and how much each and every one of those games means because you have the ability to now, if you're one of those top teams that we just talked about, lose a game or two and still probably make it and even still be the favorites probably even as a lower seed – to win the whole thing because we know that, hey, you lost these two games in the regular season. It's not going to matter because we know seating wise you're still probably a top four team. Yeah,
1: it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the summer. We'll keep you all linked up with that. But we'll move on to some New York sports news. This will be our last segment of the evening. Just a little update as what's going on in New York sports outside of basketball. Um, So Eli Manning rejoins the Giants organization in a business ops and fan engagement role. And it was announced that he will be inducted into the Giants' ring of honor on September 26th when they play the Atlanta Falcons and have his number 10 jersey retired. And fun fact, Eli Manning's first career NFL start came against
2: yeah.
1: the Atlanta Falcons. So how fitting is that?
0: Very fitting. Uh, that's a game right in, uh, yeah, right at the end of September. I might try to go to that. I might try to go to that. Yeah. Because I've, I've always wanted to see – you know, I've always wanted to see Calvin Ridley. I'm a big fan of his, and then adding Kyle Pitts as well. I think that could be a really good game. And you know, for me at least, is that obviously Tom is New Yorkers. The the later you wait, the colder it gets in the season. Yeah, so to get a game absolutely. nice and early, uh, being that I'm still in school as well, where the semester really hasn't picked up steam yet, it'd be a perfect game to go to. But I know with a big ceremony like that, tickets are gonna skyrocket. But oh, absolutely! I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna check into it because that that'd be a really cool game to attend unload
1: the bank for that game and James with a comment you know Kyle that might be a good trip for all of us yeah it would Uh, be be I agree I agree we get Hank Sam you know call up Andy from (laughs) Illinois (laughs) Um, that would be interesting and it would be nice to you know I was at the Tom Coughlin Justin Tuck and Ernie Acorsi Ring of Honor ceremony back in 2016 and that was actually the last Giants game I was at when they played the Cincinnati Bengals, and it was just a very chilling moment. Nobody left their seats at halftime. So from that experience, um, I highly recommend going to a Ring of Honor game like that, and
0: um, you know, once a I mean, Giant, listen, all, I've, never, a Giant. I've never been to a Giants game in my life, so this would be my first, and and seeing one of the greatest players to play for the organization suit up, retire would be a would be a tremendous day. It really would be.
2: Yeah, that
1: would definitely be awesome. But other news, Kyle, your Yankees get Luke Voigt returning to the lineup tonight from the IL, that oblique strain. How's he doing by the way? Do we have uh
0: do we have hit a home on? run
1: tonight? Did he?
0: He hit a home run.
1: Which stinks for me in fantasy baseball because I checked my team a little too late and moved him off the IL today around four PM and I am not eligible to start him until tomorrow. And I'm going up against Tommy the Mac McNamara, the best team in the league.
0: Very nice. Yeah, but he had a home run. uh, It's it's 2-2 right now against the Kansas City Royals, but he got a home run to put the Yankees up 1-0 at the bottom of the first. I'm pulling for you guys to make the
1: playoffs. I mean, it it would just be nice to see both New York baseball teams make the playoffs this year. I know the the Mets probably have a better shot right now than the Yankees, but the Yankees are the Yankees. They always find a way to get in every single year. So that will be very interesting.
0: Yeah, they're slowly catching up. They had built themselves an eight-and-a-half uh, game deficit behind Boston and Tampa, but they're only four-and-a-half out of uh, first spot now. So, you know, still plenty of baseball left to play, you know. So it is. it is. Big thing for me staying with this Yankees team, you beat all these teams, you got to beat the teams within your own division. If you do that, you'll then be a successful team going forward in the playoffs. But they got to do that. That's step number one.
1: Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see what Luke Voigt brings to the lineup. And now moving on to the Mets, obviously there's been a lot of injury updates with them. Uh, Jeff McNeil returned to the team yesterday after missing a month with a hamstring strain. So he's back. Michael Conforto returns to the lineup tonight following a hamstring injury. So I'm really excited about that. However, our pitching has taken a huge hit over the last couple of days. Joey Lucchesi will like. Yeah, he'll be undergoing Tommy John surgery. And look at this, uh, Strowman one-inning and out. Sal, do yeah. you know what
0: happened? Yeah, I uh, do. Kyle, I do you know what happened? Yeah, Strowman being evaluated for left, uh, left hip sort. Mm. So that's, the, that's amazing.
1: And DeGrom hasn't been 100% either.
0: No. I know he pitched yesterday. By the way, lights out. Absolutely unbelievable yeah. once again. But he's been – he's been he's had a couple stints right like three or four times he's been hurt this season he only had one stint on the il and he only missed a start but he's been like hurt like three or four times
1: yes yep, yeah, he has which you got to be very careful with that because the grom is the last person you want to go down long term and so yeah so it is unbelievable Strowman is a guy you want to have in this rotation i think outside of jacob the grom your, your number two is Taiwan Walker. And then you get into David Peterson. We started Jared Eichoff last night. Oh, you know, that went okay. He, he wasn't bad. Um, yeah, not good. So Stroman leaves the game, but we do get McNeil and Conforto back. The pitching also. I mentioned Lucchesi, Um It's probably getting Tommy John. MR, MRI revealed the torn ligament. Lucchesi really wasn't a solidified piece of the rotation anyway, as much as that hurts to lose. A potential starting pitcher, a glue piece, you know, potential sixth guy that can spot start for you. That does hurt because Yamamoto, who we signed as well, is out as well. So thank goodness for Taiwan Walker. I gotta tell you, and now with Stroman hurt, David Peterson better step up his game because Robert Giselman now is also out six to eight weeks with a right lat
0: strain. Not good. It's, it's not good. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. When is uh? When is, um, Syndergaard's placement for a return and when is Carrasco's place for a return? Carrasco.
1: Actually, I did look this up today before the show. Carrasco is one to two months. Oh boy. And Syndergaard. I, I know Nimo is, is either day to day or week to week. JD Dave is not coming back for a while. He has no timetable. Um, yeah, sounds right. Carrasco is, is end of July. Um, they, yeah, Cindergaard, I want to say after the All Star break, but if I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know if he's going to pitch this year. Um, You, yeah. See, at end of August, right there. If the Mets are in contention, maybe. But what are you going to do? You're going to throw him four to five innings a game.
0: You know, That's the thing, if he comes back end of August, you, know, you probably get your first start in a September, and then you go yes. right into the playoffs. So he gets four starts before being in a playoff game. Potentially, I mean tough call to me as a Mets
1: fan it really doesn't make sense to bring Noah Syndergaard back this year don't get me wrong I want to see Syndergaard back this year but for me it doesn't make the most sense Um, yeah getting Carrasco back will be huge though especially with all these injuries now I'm looking forward to that Um, hopefully Stroman's okay hopefully it's not long term but Kyle it's been a lot of fun tonight had a little heated debate at the beginning obviously all in good fun um, the Islanders segment with uh, Matt. That was awesome stuff. And then, you know, just running through the NHL playoffs and, and some other stuff too, the college football expansion. It's been a lot of fun. So I want to thank you again for joining me tonight. I want to thank all the fans and the listeners for commenting in the stream. And remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel at Review and Preview Sports. That is where all our content is coming up, as well as the full exclusive interview with Matt, D.G. Giacomo tomorrow, where we will, we will also cover the Gerard Gallant press conference. So, Kyle, any final thoughts before we sign off?
0: No, good show, Tom, as always, and uh, always a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um,
1: looking forward to next week. It should be a lot of fun as we will be more deeper into the NHL and the NBA playoffs. So it'll be very, very interesting to see how that unfolds. But until then... On behalf of Kyle Russo, I'm Tom Scametta saying so long. You've
2: been watching Review and Preview here on Facebook Live. Have a good night, everybody.